If you have your Bibles with you, your phone, you can go ahead and turn to uh, James chapter 2. I'll, I'll begin reading, though, in just a minute with James 1, verse 26. James 1, chapter 2. Excuse me, I need to twist this around there. There you go. Uh, now, it's kind of funny. You realize it's been too long since you've gone to the doctor when you have to call your wife and say, now, what do... What does a doctor do when you first, like, check in? Like, are you still filling out paperwork, or do you do that online beforehand, or do they give you an iPad? And it reminds me that I should probably get a physical at some point. At least I know what it used to be like, right? What it used to be like is you would go to the doctor's office. I don't know, do people still do that, go to the office? I think you do all from home now. Uh, but as you fill out this paperwork, you can kind of feel like, like, like you're being interrogated a little bit, right? You're asked all kinds of questions about aspects of your health that you normally don't give much attention to. And some of it can make you feel a little nervous when all of a sudden you're wondering, do I have shortness of breath? Let me try breathing uh, or whatever the, the questions are. The doctor is looking for warning signs, I imagine, not being a doctor, there's lots around here would be able to tell us. Uh, they're looking for warning signs that you may not normally mention. You're, you're just going there for a checkup or maybe because you have a cold. Uh, so they're going to look out for things that you wouldn't even notice. We're at the point of James, and really we'll be there for, for, for more or less for a couple chapters, in which James begins his health, question, his health questionnaire for us. See, He's helped in that first chapter the readers process through the difficult circumstances that they were going through. And it wasn't just about counting our trials joys, but it was about being steadfast and how do we process our challenging responses to trials. And now James wants to make sure that they really are spiritually healthy. And we saw some of that last week as James described Three characteristics of, of, of pure and undefiled religion. Of what true religion is. A spiritually healthy person, if you remember, is one who bridles their tongue. It's someone who helps or visits orphans and widows in their distress. And someone who keeps himself unstained from the world. This morning, James exposes how stained and how spiritually sick we can be Without knowing it. And he's going to ask one of those questions when you're like, wait, why is he asking this question? Is this a problem? And really, as we read it, you're going to see that, oh, we know that this is bad. But is it my problem? And that's by God's grace what God is going to be doing in our hearts. Be examining and helping us understand through his spirit whether this is our problem. It's favoritism and partiality. I'm going to read now from James 1, verses 26 to uh, chapter 2, verse 7. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, 
And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? This morning in James 2 verses 1 through 7, we're going to see why favoritism is, is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. Why favoritism is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore that in two ways. First, we're going to look in verses 1 through 3 at James's command against favoritism. And then and from, from verses 4 through 7, we're going to be seeing six reasons to reject favoritism or, or partiality. So let's look first at that command against favoritism. In James 2.1 it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And once again, James affectionately begins, My brethren. And yet, and we're going to see, love is not incompatible with sternness. And his point is clear. Faith and favoritism do not mix. From the onset of this section, James says, if you are going to believe in Jesus Christ, you must be repenting of favoritism. You must have repented of it. You must keep repenting of it. You must be willing to repent of favoritism. Partiality must not have a place among God's people. James uses the phrase, the attitude of personal favoritism, or ESV is a little bit more simple, to show partiality. And it translates a single word in the Greek, which literally means to receive a face. To receive a face. And it means to treat someone better than someone else based on their externals. To, 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 to welcome the appearance of someone. To give preferential treatment to someone. So James gives an example of, of, of favoritism, and it's such a simple example that perhaps we wouldn't even notice if something similar happened to this in our church. We may not even think anything of ourselves doing something like this. And he says in verse 2, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. So two men come into the church gathering. One is obviously rich. The Greek word is literally gold-fingered. Okay, this is a gold-fingered man, and it has the idea that he may have had multiple rings on his fingers. The man is dressed to impress. There's an intentional show of wealth and status. His clothing is luxurious. Now, that may have been his, his everyday appearance. It's not saying he's dressed up to go to church. But he was in the habit of dressing well. His appearance would definitely 
make an announcement, announce his arrival among the predominantly poor Christian Jews that James was writing to. You can kind of imagine someone driving up in a limousine out there and letting someone walk up. It would probably have some of the same idea for us. We'd all be looking, oh, who's that? The second man is poor. So poor that his condition is serious. He's destitute. He's without resources. He's dependent upon others for his daily survival. His clothes are filthy. He's, he's likely unwashed. He's, he's likely hungry. He's likely smelly. Perhaps he makes a quick detour to the snack table when we used to have one. I don't know if we'll ever have one of those again. You probably have the right idea if you're thinking of someone who looks like they've been living on the streets. But there's not necessarily the idea here that, 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 that this is a addict. It's not the idea that, that this is someone who is out of their mind. They're just very, very poor. So you're not necessarily thinking, uh, is this person safe? You just know this person's very poor. Now, we don't know much about these guests. We really know nothing besides this. James paints a pretty simple picture. It seems obvious that, 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 that both were interested in, in Christianity, or perhaps both of them were new converts. Maybe they were guests from a different church. We don't, we, we don't know. But James does lead us to, to some suspense here, what's going to happen next. How are these two guests going to be treated? Both of whom bring their own kind of attention. So verse 2 brings us to the point of decision. James 2, 3 says, And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. And we know, wrong answer. And you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool. To pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes is, is, is to look favorably upon the person because of their appearance. You, you feel fortunate to have this person visit. So you go overboard in showing, in showing hospitality. You sit here in a good place and that you is emphatic. So glad you joined us. Let me get a good seat for you. It's probably near the, the speaker in, in the front of the room, in the front of the gathering. And you can imagine the other Christians kind of murmuring among themselves, kind of as there's a little buzz going. Do you, do you, do you see who's here? Do you see who joined us? Hey, can, can, can someone make sure to go get an elder to say hi? There's a bustle surrounding this gold-fingered man. He's quite the catch for your church, or maybe will be. In contrast, the poor man is told, you stand over there. Or, or sit down, if you want, by my footstool. It's fine you're here, but you can't expect a seat, right? You're welcome to stand in the back, or here, there's some room at my feet. And you can imagine the awkward feeling. Like, like why is this happening now? The ring guy, what is the, what is the ring guy going to make of the rag guy? Are we, are, we, are, are we that kind of church? Or maybe, as the early church was taking care of the poor amongst themselves, maybe someone's doing the tally and saying, oh, another mouth to feed? How are we going to do this? 
Maybe you have felt the temptation to do something similar. Probably, I hope. Maybe not as obvious, although maybe some of you have. Which of the two men would you choose to greet? Which would you be more likely to make room for near you? Which would you be more likely to invite to church lunch afterwards or to your home? See, receiving someone's face doesn't have to be only based on their clothes. And our world can be different. It could be just like this. But James is just bringing up an example here. I mean, he's just picking some low-hanging fruit. We can look at many things. We could receive someone's face because of their ethnicity, because of their attractiveness, because of their, of their physique, or maybe reject them because of their physique, because of their speech, because of their accent, because of their age, because of their economic class, because of the way that they handle themselves. Are they confident or are they anxious? Are, are, are they bold and outgoing or are they reserved and make you feel uncomfortable? Are they fashionable? Are they famous? Are they eloquent? It could be receiving someone's face to receive them because of where they were educated. Or because of the level of education that they received. Or because of their field of employment. Because of their accolades in a certain industry. Or, oh, you know who this is in our little pocket of the church world? could be for any of these reasons that we receive someone's face. See, and receiving doesn't only have to be about the way that we greet someone either. It could be, like I said, about whom we show hospitality to. It could be about whom we invite to serve in a certain ministry. It could be ultimately about whom we, 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 we welcome and give authority to. Is it only to the prosperous? It is only to the educated? It is only... To, to, the, to the connected. See, before this example, James began in verse 1. My, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Faith and favoritism do not mix. Partiality looks at someone's face, but it reveals your heart. See, partiality is exposing you. It's exposing your willingness to use people. Partiality is playing a game with people as pawns to accomplish your goals. To gain an advantage. It it may be future favors, like a job or a reference. It may be the praise of men being connected with someone. It may be showing compassion, showing hospitality to somebody because it's going to make you look good for doing that. Maybe you do run to the poor person because of, of what it's going to, of the steam it's going to bring you for being that person. It may be the, uh, the, the, the self-congratulation of knowing someone, of, 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 you're someone who knows that attractive person. Or you're someone who knows that important person, that famous person, that powerful person. It may be the value that someone can bring to your group or to your church when they join. It may be the feeling that you've arrived, like I'm part of the in crowd. It's purchasing your value with people of value. 
purchasing your value with people of value. And, brothers and sisters, that is not the way we came to know Jesus Christ. Right? That is what we had to repent of when we came to know Jesus Christ. Coming to Christ requires us to be stripped away of anything we could boast in. Knowing Christ demanded the dismantling of our value system. Knowing Christ was you choosing Christ and rejecting the world. But favoritism is running to the world again. And James has said, you're going to have to reject Christ if you do this. Listen to to, to Philippians 3, 7 through 11. I know I read it last week, but it applies. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, for Paul there, it was his being a Pharisee and, and all of his works righteousness. For us, it could be the whole world system of, of getting ahead and of making yourself known and of achieving power, of looking a certain way, of being accepted. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul totally buying into a whole new system. It's not the system of, 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 oh, well, that looks like a popular person. This is a system of joining in Christ so that we can know the power of his resurrection being made like him, of being conformed to his death, of going through sufferings with Christ. This is a complete forsaking of all that past garbage. See, holding our faith in Christ meant, when we came to Christ, repenting of the world's games of achieving any kind of, 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 uh, of, of success. Excuse me. Faith in Christ required rejecting the world's system of worth. Favoritism, partiality, is willingly returning to that system. Faith in Christ required repentance from manipulating people to build your kingdom. That is what we did before Christ. Favoritism and partiality is a return to manipulating to build again your own kingdom, to using people as your currency. How much of that is what happens in school? Right? With, with peers. How much of that is what happens in the business world? That cannot be what happens at church. As Jesus says in Matthew 20, verses 27 and 28, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Favoritism is about serving to get. Favoritism is about serving, about becoming someone's slave in a sense, you know, kind kind of like, well, I'm going to do whatever I can to get from this person. Faith in Christ is about being served first by Christ so that then you can be a servant for Christ. 
partiality is, is, is filthy with the world's stain. And that's why James goes here from that previous passage. Partiality is the world's stain. It is the world system. It's man's way. It's not Christ's way. Our Savior was no sycophant who flattered to achieve his ends. That's not how Christ came to win people. And we must not be either. That's the command to reject favoritism. And, and, and now James says a bunch of really interesting things here. And, and we kind of have to, have to kind of ask at, at each step, well, why does he say this? And, and really, I think he's going to be building some reasons here, some reasons to reject favoritism, to reject partiality. He's given the command in verses 1 through 3, and now we're going to see some reasons to reject favoritism. The first is that favoritism reveals wickedness in judgment. Favoritism reveals wickedness in judgment. And here, James calls and, 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 and calls out those who show favoritism for what it really is. And we see that in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And really, that first part, make distinctions among yourselves, it doesn't sound horrible, right? Uh, but notice what the grounds for those distinctions are. Rags and rings. Our distinctions isn't based on right and wrong or on what God's words say, but simply on what we're seeing or on what we're hearing. So when we assign value to one human over another, we expose how we've been stained by the world. We've rejected God's way of seeing people and succumbed to the world's ways. And what started, and it does sound innocently enough, making distinctions, it starts innocently sounding, distinguishing between which is the more valuable guest. James doesn't mince any words here. We are exposed as being judges with evil motives. The word motives is more, pro, is more likely thoughts. Judges with evil thoughts or evil reasonings. That, that, that there's corruptness going on in our thinking. It's rotten. And our, our internal dialogue is, is, is broken. We have a twisted standard. And you can imagine a, 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 a judge and whether it's because of motives or 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 kickback he's going to get or 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 pandering to those who are going to reelect him giving these these unjust verdicts and that's what james says we're like when we're judging between people on their appearances we would quickly condemn an unjust judge do we as quickly condemn ourselves? That is what we do when we judge on external appearances. Our heart seeks a kickback of some kind. I'm going to make this, this relationship, and it's not just someone who's rich. We can do this for all kinds of reasons. I'm going to make this relationship because of something I'm going to get. James doesn't mince words. This wicked behavior must have no place in God's kingdom. The foot of the cross is not the place for the comparing of the value of souls. The foot of the cross is not where we should be comparing the value of people's souls. 
It's the first reason. Favoritism reveals wickedness and judgment. It also reveals just an ignorance of God's ways. It reveals an ignorance in, in how God is working in the world. Listen to James 2.5. In fact, James says to, to listen. And, 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 and he does say, listen, my beloved brethren. This, this is hard. It's something you're guilty of. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world, most of you, he's saying, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? See, James points to, the, to what should be obvious in God's pattern of working in this world. God's normal pattern is to save the needy, not the rich. That is God's normal pattern. Now, James doesn't explain why that's God's pattern. He doesn't explain why here God does that. Why does God choose for the poor to be rich in faith? Why does God choose the needy to inherit his kingdom? We know from scripture that God doesn't show favoritism, right? Like Romans 2.11 says. There's no partiality with God. Or Acts 10.35, it says, In every nation, uh, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. God doesn't show partiality. When it comes to judgment... God is going to apply the same rule towards the rich and the poor. God is not, not manipulated the way that we are by gold rings and bright robes. And neither does God judge the poor with leniency because they're poor. God is impartial in judgment. But then, why, if God's impartial, does God choose the poor? Doesn't that kind of sound like partiality? If God's impartial, why does he choose the poor to be heirs of the kingdom? See, one reason that God chooses the poor to be rich in faith is that only God gets the glory for doing so. See, God's motives maybe would be questioned if God were, 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 were to pick out the way that we would. If God were to pick out the desirable, the powerful, the super smart, and the influencers of the world, right? Like, like, like I'm going to start a new civilization with a thousand people, and I need all the best and the brightest, and we're going to gather all of them together. That's not how God does it. God is not like a, a, a hunter of, some, of exotic animals. He's, he's not searching through decks of trading cards looking for rares. He wants the commons. He wants the poor's. That's how God shows his glory. God shows his glory by taking those whom the world would discard. By granting them faith and making them heirs of the kingdom. And I do think that we forget. I mean, I've forgotten. This, this is a challenging idea here. We are so, I'm going to say lucky. We are so blessed to be saved in America. Right? If, if, if we were to say, what is God doing in the world? We would expect he's to be saving from around the world, from the poor of the world. For us to be saved from among the rich of the world is God's grace. I got off my notes there. See, God shows his glory by taking those whom the world would, would, would discard. I read that. So, like, like with 2 Samuel 7, 23. 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, reveals about God's working with, with, with the people uh, 
of Israel, 2 Samuel 7, 23. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself a slave people as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. See, we see how God works, that God rescues and enslaves people to do good to them. They, they weren't a desirable people, but God did this for his glory. Or Luke 4, verse 18, when, and, and, and here Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, God, anointed me, Jesus, to preach the gospel to the poor. That, that was God's plan. That was God's plan, sending Jesus to have him preach to the poor. And why is this? 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29 tells why. For consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. See, God often uses poverty to, 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 in this world to expose someone's need for spiritual riches. And that's God's way. It's not like being poor will automatically make you more open to the gospel. But Jesus does say in Luke 6.24, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. You've got everything you need in this life. That's dangerous. It's dangerous for us. It's dangerous for our kids. Luke 6.20 says, turning his gaze towards his disciples, Jesus began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And in Luke 6.20, he doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. He just says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The poor are those, and not that all of them are going to be saved, but understand neediness and have a, 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 a openness to see there has to be more than this life. See, we are in danger of doing what James was warning against, of missing how God works in the world. If we want to find those who God has chosen to love him, we must forsake our ignorance and see the world the way that God does. We have to forsake our ignorance and see the world the way the world that God does. We have to look at God's ways. Luke 1, 52-53 says that God has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. And God is doing something shocking in the world where it is going to be the poor who he saves. And I think that you're, many of us are looking around and say, well, that doesn't necessarily describe me. Praise the Lord for his grace, right? But maybe... And I'm going to go out on a limb here. If we would like to see more saved, where should we go? Maybe to those who are poor. Because that's God's way of working in the world. Now, Jesus didn't say that God only chooses the poor to be rich in faith. They're not the only heirs of his kingdom. They're not the only ones who love him. And notice it doesn't say that being poor means that you are rich in faith or that being poor means that you are heirs of the kingdom. That is also false teaching. 
A response in faith and of love are required by all those that God chooses to be saved. But we do have to ask ourselves, are we on board with God's plan? And if we haven't been doing it, I think it's a good question to ask, how can we be doing it? This is not to say that you're not, but it does get me thinking, how am I involved where God may be most likely to save people? God wants the gospel preached to the poor. We should expect to find the elect among the poor. So if we want to see Cornerstone Bible Church grow of newly saved people, I think we can make a case from this passage. Like, let's explore going to those who are needy. So the first reason to reject favoritism reveals wickedness in judgment. It reveals ignorance of God's ways. God chooses the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. But number three, favoritism brings shame upon the rejected. Favoritism brings shame upon the rejected. We see that in the beginning of verse 6. Favoritism brings shame upon the rejected. James 2, 6 says, but you have dishonored the poor man. The rich walk around with their honor visible. And the poor are often already embarrassed. Favoritism heaps shame upon those who already suffer. And it's not just about clothes. It's not just about money. It may be about age. It may be about body shape. It can be about all kinds of things. James exposes the sin for what it is. It is dishonor. It is shame. You have humiliated the poor man. What you're doing is not okay. You are not in line with God's purposes. Favoritism is valuing the visible and transitory more than the invisible and the internal. See, in practice, favoritism rejects the truth that both people are equally made in God's image, right? It rejects that truth that both people are equally in God's image. And it signs worth to someone because of, 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 of the face of them. And the rejected are reduced to less than. God's creatures made in God's images are shamed when we reject one and, and prefer another. And why do we do that? Why do we reject one and why do we prefer another? Because they have less to give us, right? They don't give me what I want. We dishonor them. The fourth reason that we have for, uh, to reject favoritism. Favoritism displays the stupefying effects of sin. Right? Favoritism displays the stupefying effect of sin. It makes you dull and senseless. And James says this in 2.6. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Is it not the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Now let's be clear. James does not have a problem with the rich. He's not bitter. He's already given the rich commands to boast in their humiliation. If you're, if you're rich and if you've been humbled by God, then rejoice in that, that God has had this act of grace upon you. James knew rich men like Barnabas who, who sold his property to care for the needs of the saints. James knew that the rich could be humbled and hold their faith in Christ. But James was concerned about the forgetfulness of the early church. See, as a pattern, it was the rich, it was the powerful who were oppressing and dominating the poor who are violently hauling them into court. It was the rich who are abusing their authority to crush the predominantly poor Christians. They were misusing their wealth and their influence to win verdicts against the poor. 
They showed no mercy when it came, came to collecting debts from the poor, when they held back the, the workers' wages from the poor. Now, that doesn't mean that the church shouldn't welcome the rich. They should have welcomed this rich man. But preferential treatment exposed what they were hoping in. See, they were hoping that the rich man could help better themselves. The old world system still held sway over their hearts. It's not all about money. It could just be, who do I want to be my friend? Who do I want to be known as knowing? They wanted what the world offered. And and the rich, the powerful, the attractive were the fast track to having their desires satisfied. So So let me ask you, do you crave the validation of the rich and powerful? of Hollywood, of academia, of, of athletes. Now, you might say, well, I want Christ honored in the public sphere. I, I, I want those famous people to, to, to know and love Christ so that they can tell how good he is. Well, it's good. But that's not God's normal instruments for advancing in his kingdom. James is, is saying God uses the poor typically, not the rich. So, guys, have you lost your minds? That's what James is saying. Is it not the rich who oppress you, who personally drag you into court? Why are you, being, why are you playing favorites? It doesn't make any sense. So we see this stupefying effect of sin there. The oppression of Christians is orchestrated by the powerful. So don't beg for favor because you hope the powerful will help you achieve your life's goals. The fifth reason to reject favoritism. Favoritism reveals a risk of disloyalty to Christ. It reveals a risk of disloyalty. It doesn't mean you're going to be disloyal to Christ, but it does show that the doors opened to disloyalty to Christ. See, or why else does James say this? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? These people Hate your Savior. Now, of course, that, that, that's not all the rich. Right? There were saved among the rich churches that he was writing to. But as a class, as a group, they were blaspheming Christ. The phrase, the good name which has been called upon you, it, 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 it suggests our belonging to Christ. Or even our ownership by Christ. It is like wearing a sports team on your jersey. I see someone who's owned by it by the Lakers this morning, not really, or, 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 or getting a, 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 a tattoo of someone's name on it. Hopefully you're not owned by your mom or something. We, 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 we belong to the name of Christ. We have his name tattooed on us. See, favoring the rich would have been irrational simply because of the way that the rich oppress the poor. But it gets worse. It was also logical because the rich were blaspheming the name of Christ. It was especially fierce against Christians. Poor Christians were even an easier target for their cruelty. An easier target than the rest of the poor. The rich were already ignoring the Old Testament law about how they were to treat the poor. But now they could justify that these Christians deserve to be treated badly because they are worshiping that false Messiah, Jesus. So they were blaspheming Christ to to increase their riches. So favoritism 
against this class is exposed to disloyalty when Christians court the favor of those who hate Christ because of what Christians hope to gain from these relationships. And think about that. How much of that goes on in the public sphere? Right? We're, 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 we're kind of, I'm just going to say, I mean, we're kind of like dogs waiting at the master's table for, 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 for some respect from the rich or the powerful, from politicians. Like, like, like they're going to add to the name of Christ. We must not hold these incredible, priceless blessings that Christ gives in one hand and then optimistically hold out the, our hand to the other ones who blaspheme Christ. Oh, can you give me some respect too? We only need one Savior, saints, right? And it will not be a president. So who is blaspheming Christ in your world? It may be the rich. It may be those in Hollywood. It may be the famous or academia or media or politicians. How do the ones who you'd be so excited if they, if they showed up at your party, right? Or, 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 or at your, your book group. How do they treat the fair name by which you've been called? What do you want that you're willing to, to butter up those who would mock Christ? What, what's of so much value that, 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 that you would pander to someone? I'm not saying that you guys are doing that or, or, or that I'm doing that, but, but that it's in our heart of favoritism. Is it approval? Is it honor? Is it acceptance? What do we value more? What more could the rich give than the grace of Christ that's been given to us? Right? They, 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 can, they, they offer us nothing. So what do we see when we see people made in God's image? The image of God and man. So we run to them, no matter what they look like. The last reason here, and you're like, but wait, we finished with 2-7. I was hoping Isaiah had miscounted. No, for the last reason, we're going to go back to verse 1. We're going to go back to verse 1. See, and the last reason is, favoritism has led people to reject Christ. And James does something cool here. Okay? Favoritism has led people to reject Christ. And, 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 and we're going to focus on one phrase. We hurried past an important phrase. Where it says, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ... And, 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 and the ESV hints towards it a little bit more. Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And now I'm going to tell you what the little Greek is. It's our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. And it's such a fascinating way to refer to Jesus, the glory. We can ask ourselves, James, like why here? Was, was, was that a mistake? Did he just, was he just feeling particularly worshipful so he threw some glory in there? See, James refers to Jesus as the glory, not just because of what is theologically true, although that is true, that Jesus is the glory, the presence of God. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But that is not what, what men saw when Jesus was on earth, right? They, they, they didn't get the extent of that glory. Philippians 2, 7 talks about how Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 
says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might became, become rich. Christ became poor, becoming human, becoming a slave among humans, a servant, becoming poor, so that we could become rich. See, it wasn't until his resurrection, it wasn't until the ascension that God the Father glorified Jesus, God become man, with the glory that Jesus had at the beginning. So, so track here, when he was on earth, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. His glory wasn't seen, right? But James says, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. We know now the glory that Jesus has. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus' path to glory was through his humiliation. Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was born in, or Jesus grew up in the backwoods of, 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 of Galilee. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted by him. He wasn't the ring-fingered guy. He wasn't the gold-ringed guy. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Philippians 2, I skipped it earlier, describes this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was more shamed than any human ever because he was a righteous one deserving none of that treatment, having no sin going through the ultimate disgrace, suffering God's wrath in our place. So James' phrase, the glory, should be a warning sign to us. Oh, where's he going with this? See, the heart of favoritism rejected Christ. The heart of favoritism rejected Christ. Partiality failed to see the glory of God in Christ. And favoritism... With, with one another, favoritism is a return to the worldliness which led to the rejection of Christ. Some of the Jews to whom James was writing were quite possibly there at that same Passover when the crowd shouted for Barabbas over Jesus. The human's heart capacity to evaluate worth is broken. And that's why we need this passage. We need to get the stain of this worldly system off of us. And praise God that there is cleansing in Jesus Christ. That those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have been completely cleansed of this. That, that we will not be punished. We will not be judged for this sin. But we do need to keep repenting of it. It is incompatible with faith in Christ. The heart that fails to see the worth of the one made in God's image, our fellow man made in God's image, has much in common with a heart that failed to see the one who is the radiance of God's glory. 
It's the same broken evaluation system. Can we say that we accept the glory of Christ? Can we say that we accept God's glory in Christ and reject the one in rags? What would we have done, just by appearances, just on face, if Jesus knocked on the door of our church at the same time as the most well-known Instagram influencer? Excuse me. Right, the, 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 the most famous athlete, famous actor, most famous politician, most famous pastor. Who would have gotten our attention? Would Jesus the glory have gotten our attention? We spent some time this morning with Dr. James, right? And he's been asking some hard questions about favoritism about who we run to, who we respond to, whose attention we desire. Not all of you need to be convicted in the same way. This doesn't have to be all of our struggle in the same way. But let me ask, has your religion, has your religion been stained by the world? Are you guilty of partiality? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that the work that you're doing in our hearts through your spirit, through your word, would continue in this upcoming week. I pray, Father, that you would provide us with opportunities uh, to expose our partiality. Lord, we pray, Father, for much conviction over it. We pray, Lord, for deep understanding why it is not compatible with faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we'd be convinced by these reasons to run from it, Lord. We don't want to be evil judges, Lord. We don't want to have wicked thoughts. We don't want to be the kind of people uh, who would have rejected Christ's glory. We confess, Lord, that we were all like that at one time. We're all stained by this world system. Lord, we want to get as far away from it as possible. We want pure religion. Please, Lord, do a transforming work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.